एक मिनट रुक जाओ रेडी होने दो चलो ये कर लेते हैं अक्षय हाई दिस इज सौरभ एंड यू आर लिस्निंग टू द फाउंडर थीसिस पॉडकास्ट वी मीट सम ऑफ द मोस्ट सेलिब्रेटेड सार्ट ऑफ फाउंडर्स इन द कंट्री एंड वी वॉन्ट टू लर्न हाउ टू बिल्ड अकॉर्न I'm Greg Moran, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Zoomcar. Have you heard about Agnes Kongsha Boyashilu? No, neither had I until I googled Mother Teresa. Yes, that was her name before she came to India. And just like Agnes, today Akshay Dutt is talking to another foreigner who came to India to solve big Indian problems at scale. Greg Moran's journey from pursuing a master's in business from an Ivy League B school to scaling up Zoomcar is a fascinating one and it's a journey like no other. He's someone who is driven by a passion to solve global ecological problems and has decided to handle all the challenges of building a startup along with all the challenges of doing it in a country where he doesn't speak the native language and has no roots in. Listen to his candid conversation with Akshay Dutt to discover some unique outsider and insider perspectives about doing business in India. Uh yeah, I would say, you know, certainly a healthy amount of travel. Um you know, we kind of had, you know, a pretty diverse travel where we would always go on at least two or three trips a year. Uh you know, usually one trip international and then, you know, one or two trips domestically. Uh you know, from the time I was, you know, a pretty small kid uh you know right from the time I was probably 6 or 7 uh is when we would you know have you know consistent travel uh you know to these different destinations so you know that you know, I I still remember my uh my first time uh, abroad was when uh you know we went to uh Italy uh when I was uh 8 and so that was um you know definitely you know very kind of uh opening and you know enlightening uh for me and you know then when was your first time to India did your parents take you to India Uh no so my first time in India was actually uh, much much later uh so <laughs> certainly not when I was eight uh no that was that was actually when we were just starting up Zoom car so yeah actually I was uh, at that point I was 26 mm-hmm. okay yeah. by the time you were uh, finishing up high school did you know what you wanted to do with your life <laughs> uh no no certainly not i mean i think uh, very few people i i believe at the age of 17 or 18 uh really know what they want to do and you know even if they kind of tell you what they want to do uh you know more often than not that yeah, typically changes right um i i think uh you know at that point i i knew i was i was going to university of pennsylvania and i i knew i was going to be you know doing something within sort of you know broader business law um you know politics uh, economics so i i had this um you know sort of loose vague idea that i was going to study you know those areas um but in terms of you know what that would you know actually mean or what that would actually translate to uh you know i really didn't have much of an idea so i thought it you know i at that point you know i, I didn't honestly really know that many sort of occupations or jobs so to speak i knew you know, i i knew vaguely that you know you could be kind of like a lawyer or you could be a you know a banker or you could you know maybe you know be a consultant uh you know i mean you know honestly at that point uh, i i didn't even really know what those careers actually meant uh you know my my parents you know came from you know more modest backgrounds and you know they were kind of much more like middle class type jobs so i i i knew i didn't want to be an accountant uh and <laughs> i knew i didn't want to be a tax accountant i knew i didn't want to be a nurse or you know go into medical malpractice 
uh, law. So I, I, I knew I didn't want to do for sure what my parents did. Uh, but, you know, apart from that, uh, you know, it was, it was obviously still pretty open. So, uh, like in India, when you get into a college, you like pre-select what you want to do. Is it the same for uh, for the US also? Like you had to decide in advance what you want to do and apply for that specific program? Or is it more flexible where you can join and figure out what you want to do? No, no, it's much more the latter. Uh, as I'm sure you're, you're aware, uh, the US is not you know, nearly that prescriptive. Um, so, yeah, I think you, you select the, the college you'll be in as in, school, meaning that you have to kind of, you know, broadly select if you want to do engineering or business or, you know, arts and sciences, etc. So you have, you know, at a, you know, most macro level, you kind of select it that way. Uh, but you're not, uh, you're certainly not selecting like a major or a minor or, you know, a specific focus area. So uh, it's at a, you know, very high level. And even that, uh, there's flexibility uh, and you can change uh, as you go along. Hmm. So, what is it like studying at an Ivy school in the US? Uh, is it like the the 1% uh, are your peers over there or, you know, what is that whole experience? Like those four years that you spent at UPenn? Like, right, uh, right. How did uh, you- yeah, right. Well, yeah, no, I, I was I was incredibly fortunate to, to be at UPenn. You know, I think it was obviously an amazing experience uh, for probably a number of reasons. I, I think it's really you know, like with anything, uh, you know, whether you talk about, you know, being at a, you know, a company that you really enjoy or, you know, being in a school you really enjoy, uh, it's, it's really about the people, right? So I think uh, it's always about the people and, you know, that's really the name of the game. And I think what I really enjoyed the most about, you know, being a school like Penn is that you're, you're surrounded by, you know, really incredible folks, uh, across the board. I mean, obviously, you know, it certainly goes out saying that, you know, everyone was very you know, accomplished, uh, you know, academically. Uh, I, I think that, that was kind of more sort of table stakes. I think, yeah, there's a lot of schools where people are accomplished academically in the U.S. I think it's more that, you know, the the, the well-roundedness of the people, I think the, the overall, um, you know, passion that was there, um, the overall, you know, attitude and, you know, sort of that, you know, sort of progressive element of really wanting to make a, a positive impact on society. I, I think that was the piece that was most infectious. And I think, you know, especially with my circle, my close circle of friends, uh, I think that was obviously what, you know, was really always front and center. And uh, I, I think that's where, you know, there's a you know very common, a sort of very, uh, you know, clear sort of meaning of the minds. Uh, and I, I think that's what, you know, probably made it, you know, so special and valuable for me is that, you know, your closest friends and, um, you know, the, the learning that you have outside of the classroom. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, most people will tell you that, you know, in college, uh, yeah, you, you obviously, there's maybe a little bit that you learn in the classroom, but, you know, if you look at the overall learning you have in college, uh, probably 90% of that learning comes outside of the classroom. Okay. Uh, and how did your life view change during those four years? Well, I think you're exposed to a lot more, right? So, I mean, growing up in the suburbs, uh, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the city. So, you know, when you grow up in the suburbs, it's it's a lot more insulated. Uh, so, you know, you have a much more narrow worldview. Uh, you don't have the same perspectives. Uh, when you're at a, you know, a big school, you know, that has a lot of international folks, a lot of people from different backgrounds, very geographically diverse, uh, you know, you, you actually end up, you know, developing a, a much more sort of full-bodied understanding uh, of, you know, various issues. And, you know, it, it really, you know, paints a different perspective. So I, I, did your ambitions change? Like, you know, did you get more goal clarity by the end of those four years? 
Yeah, I think so, uh, for sure, uh, because you know you're just exposed to a lot more, right? So I think you you definitely have a much better pulse uh, for what is out there uh, and you know what is possible. And yeah, I think definitely the fact that you're surrounded by people from all over the world, uh, there's you know so many different you know extracurriculars that you have an opportunity to pursue as well. Um, and I think that you know more than anything is is probably what uh, you know pushes you in certain directions. And you know you're obviously exposed to people who are uh, you know older than you who are you know going down certain uh, paths. And and so you know you can obviously you know sort of pick their brains and learn from them. So yeah, I think it's just the the broader exposure that you have, and you know the, the type of interactions that you have on a day to day basis, um, is is what makes it I think so impactful and, and so special. So, so by the end of it, you wanted to be an uh, investment banker, like you joined uh, like a PE firm. Uh, I, so Fieldstone is a PE firm, right? Like so that's an investment bank. Um, so. Yeah, it's actually an investment bank within the the broader energy infra space, uh, clean tech space. Um, so yeah, no, definitely it was something which was very appealing to me uh, personally because of the the mission and the goal of the firm, which was you know really to play a, an active role in uh, helping to finance and transform the uh, energy infrastructure spaces. Uh, so for me, it was never about you know investment banking or private equity. I mean that was that was always just means to an end, right? I mean, I don't think anyone, well, I guess I shouldn't say this, but I don't, I don't think anyone really comes out of school saying like, oh, I, I want to be an investment banker per se. Um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, more that, you know, at least from my vantage point, I, I was always passionate about the industry. So I was passionate about sustainability. I was always passionate about the environment. Uh, why were you passionate about sustainability? Yeah, I think well that I, I sort of had already highlighted a little bit. I think it was for me, it was very clear that, you know, if you kind of, you know, zoom out for a minute, pull out and, you know, think about the, the, the really bigger picture, um, you know, urban sustainability is by far the most important issue of our time. Uh, because, you know, if, if you don't have cities that are growing sustainably, uh, you know, then you just have actual calamity on your hands where you have, massive amounts of congestion, you have massive amounts of pollution, you have, you know, very, very poor planning development, and then, you know, quality of life suffers dramatically, um, and then everything starts to break down. Uh, you know, that's so, obviously uh, extreme that, scenario. That's like the, uh, the the logical reason, but what is the emotional reason that you got passionate about it? No, that, I mean, that is the reason, right? So I, I think it, it hits you over the head, um, and it's it's so impactful, right? So that is the emotional reason, right? Like if you look at the, if you look at those statistics, I mean, just looking at the numbers, right? So, you know, think about, you know, cities like in India, you know, where you have, you know, 14 out of the 15 most popular, uh, most polluted rather uh, cities, uh, air quality wise. Uh, and then you, you kind of, you know, whenever you read these statistics, you're also, you know, oftentimes seeing imagery around it. Um, yeah, I think having visited a lot of these places, then, you know, it's, it's something also even growing up in New York and being in the city, like, you know, you, you can see, and, you know, New York is obviously a lot better than, you know, cities like say Bangalore or Delhi in terms of uh, pollution and congestion. But, you know, even being in New York, I mean, you, you can see visibly the effects. Um, I mean, you can feel it. Um, and, you know, I think growing up, I actually, uh, there was a, a time at least where I, I had, I suffered from asthma, um, you know, in terms of, you know, air, bad air quality, and you know, I think a lot, a lot of people 
in the the big cities in the U.S. Uh, would would suffer from asthma, you know, because of the air quality and you know because of the pollution. So yeah, I mean, I think that that always is is part of it. Um, but I think uh, you know you, you can just you know sort of see those statistics and you know it, it becomes you know painfully obvious. Uh, and whatever you read about you know broader forecasts around you know what's going to happen to you know water supply, what's going to happen to um, the food supply, you know what's going to happen uh, you know when it comes to energy supply. So all of that uh, you know just kind of hits you over the head. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So uh, what kind of work were you doing at Fieldstone? So I, I was an investment banking analyst, uh, associate, and, you know, so I was uh, doing a lot of, you know, financial modeling and, you know, a lot of uh, detailed analysis around, you know, financial structures, et cetera. But, you know, I, I think for, for me, I mean, that was obviously the functional aspect of it. Um, yeah, I, I took the time to learn a huge amount about the renewable sector and uh, looking at solar, wind, energy storage, et cetera. And so at the time we were having, we were building out a fledgling practice on the renewable side. And so I really took a, a liking of course to that. And I realized that that's where there could be a large impact. And so I, I started to focus, uh, you know, really all of my time, you know, there you know, on renewables and, you know, different you know, deal opportunities out there. And, you know, I even, you know, tried to, you know, be very active, uh, very proactive in sourcing, you know, new business for the company. And so sourced a lot of new business for the company. Uh, in terms of renewables. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So, and you also kind of uh, were doing sales in a way then when you were getting new business, getting in new business. So it meant like you would network with people and kind of right. uh, go and attend events and stuff like that. Like how does that happen yeah. in an investment bank, like finding new clients? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you would do all that. Uh, I think there's, yeah, there's no one answer, but uh, you know, I, I think if you look at it, it, it's kind of an all of the above approach. Uh, I mean, a lot of it obviously comes from the existing network. Uh, and then, you know, there's uh, opportunities to expand that network through, you know, different introductions, et cetera. But, you know, then, yeah, there, there's more sort of inorganic ways of uh, going to different uh, events and, you know, going to different conferences and seminars <clears throat> where you end up meeting a lot of folks. Uh, some of it's just cold calling, uh, to be honest. So, you know, it, it, it really depends. So I think, uh, you know, it's always best if you have a warm introduction, if, there's some sort of common intersection. I think, you know, wherever you can, you obviously try to avoid cold calling. Um, but I think, you know, we, we had, you know, we were fortunate that we had a very good brand name in that space. So within the renewable, uh, you know, clean tech space, everyone kind of knew Fieldstone. Um, and I think that really helped, uh, you know, because, you know, whenever you have a good brand name, uh, you know, you, you can always leverage and lean on that and it becomes a lot easier. Okay, okay. And then you switched and joined uh, like International Power America. So, uh, uh, what was the role there, and why did you make the switch? Sure. So that that was more of like a private equity type role where we were doing direct investing uh, from the company's balance sheet. So, uh, I mean, yeah, this <laughs> takes me way back. Um, but yeah, I know. So that you know, we were really you know looking at you know building out our own proprietary investment book uh, within the energy space, especially within renewables. And so again, was was doing a lot of transactions within wind, uh, solar, and storage, and you know we had a a pretty broad global mandate geographically. So we were looking at um, you know opportunities really across the board. So it was it was not just in you know northeast or not just in you know the south and or, or you know just in the U.S. So it was that way pretty diverse and broad. Uh, so that was actually a really great experience because. 
since we were not advisors and we were you know directly handling that and, and dealing there uh, the, the learning was actually you know very significant and you know it was you know since it's also an operating company you know unlike an advisory shop unlike an investment bank you know, there's a lot of people who are technical so there's a lot of engineers there's a lot of people who are kind of you know experts in the energy space etc right so you know those people you know really will you know, give you a huge amount of learning on the industry and so that was i think for us also equally uh, important okay okay and it, were you also traveling around the world at this time yeah, so we, we were. I mean, so, yeah, I, I traveled for, for work and then also just obviously continued to travel for fun, for pleasure. Um, so it was, a, it was a combination. By this time, had you visited India? No, no, no. I, uh, I only visited India after I left uh, that role. Uh, I, I, so I visited India for the first time uh, right before business school. So that was in, okay. in 2000. So why, why did you make that uh, decision to leave? I mean, you were enjoying here quite a bit and uh, with both investment and operational exposure. So why uh, leave and go to a business school? Well, I, I knew that I wanted to kind of get into, you know, either uh, venture capital or, you know, go and, and do something on my own. Uh, so I, I think that was something which was very clear to me from, so in 2010, 2011, uh, I, I knew I was kind of trending on that path. And I think venture capital, uh, you know, that was always appealing because it was kind of getting into the the, the technology aspect of it. And I think uh, I, I started to shift more as, when I was in international power. I think what I realized is that, you know, learning about the industry and going deep on the industry in terms of the technical aspects of it, the, the market aspects of it, uh, that was really what was fascinating. So really having a depth uh, around the knowledge of the industry uh, was what was most appealing. Uh, and so I think that's where I felt, you know, either, you know, going and doing something on my own in the space, in the broader um, sort of sustainability space, uh, or, or doing something on the venture capital side, uh, you know, would actually be the most rewarding. And, you know, I think I, I you know, realized quickly that, you know, venture capital, at least, you know, probably it was not really the, the right time uh, in terms of entry. I think it's, you know, much, much better to kind of do that when you're a little bit older in life. So, yeah, I, I think uh, if you have a lot of experience, if you have practical real-world experience, it becomes a lot more impactful to to actually be a strong venture capitalist and a strong investor. Uh, so I, I felt that uh, that was something to be looked at much later in life, much later. And, you know, focusing on, you know, the, the current sort of here and now uh, was, was going to be, you know, much more impactful. Okay, okay. And uh, so once you quit uh, International Power America, this is where you went to India. So this was like a couple of months off you took to travel. Like that was yeah. So before business school, yeah, I think uh, you know in the US and I think in India it's the same. Is that you know typically people take some downtime uh, between mm-hmm. you know their job and, and start a business school. For me, uh, you know, it was I was again fortunate and lucky that I had this opportunity, um, but. Yeah, I, I wanted to. What do you to... remember uh, about that trip to India, which you took? <laughs> I, yeah, I remember everything. Uh, so it was uh, pretty hard. It was like the first impression, you know, as soon as you uh, deboarded. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was it was pretty crazy actually, uh, because for me, uh, when I you know actually got out, uh, you know, I I had to. You know, I, I landed in the old Mumbai airport. Uh, so this was before the international 
uh, terminal was uh, really uh, built out. So this, you know, was 2011. So the international terminal was just uh, getting completed at that point, you know, T2 in, uh, in Bombay. And so I, I flew Air India, um, you know, and so, you know, Air India you know, was, was pretty, pretty brutal, um, you know, <laughs> from Mumbai. It's not, you know, at that point, I wasn't flying business class. So uh, that was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty painful 14 and a half hour, you know, 14 hour flight. Um, so yeah, long, long haul for sure. Um, when I, I remember, you know, when I got out, um, it was, it was funny because, you know, I was, I was staying while well, I was, I, I had a, I had a rough itinerary for what I wanted to do, uh, for the three months, uh, plus, what was the itinerary? uh, well, it was, it was just in terms of cities, right? So I was going to go to like, you know, 25 cities and, you know, so I was wow. going to, you know, 25 spend, cities. Uh, Amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I was going to spend, you know, I, I wanted to do kind of two tours in Bangalore two tours in Mumbai, Delhi, uh, and some of the big cities, but yeah. So the, the idea was to start in Mumbai and then, you know, from there, you know, go to, to Pune, um, go to Hyderabad, uh, go to Bangalore, Chennai, go to Goa. Um, and, and so, and then kind of circle back, uh, to, to Mumbai and then go North from there. So I think that was the, the basic idea when I, when I got into Mumbai, uh, and, and I think I was, I was obviously going on a pretty tight budget, uh, because it was one, it was a pretty long trip. So I, it was either way, it was going to be pretty expensive. And I knew I was going back to business school, so I, I kind of had to save money. So I I was going on a pretty frugal budget. Um, so I was staying in you know all sorts of and this was before really Airbnb got big uh, in India. And so I was I was staying in you know all these sort of like three star hotels that were you know this is obviously well before Oyo started as well. So I was staying in all these like budget hotels, uh, which were you know honestly pretty bad. Uh, you know not very nice accommodations. Uh, sure. Um, and you know, I think that the challenge was a lot of these people, like the places, like the guys like, didn't really speak very good English. Um, you know, and there, there were a lot of issues, like a lot of places didn't have AC that was proper. Um, a lot of them had like, you know, a lot of, you know, mosquitoes and, you know, there were just a lot of issues that way. Um, so like when I first got to, to Mumbai, uh, when I landed, I remember it was the middle of the night, um, or it was like, you know, 1am maybe. Um, so yeah, pretty late. And, you know, I, I got out, you know, I had a big suitcase and then I had uh, two, uh, two packs um, because I was going to be traveling for the, you know, three months. And yeah, I actually, uh, I remember I couldn't get a cab, so I had to take a rickshaw from the airport. And uh, yeah, I was, I was taking a rickshaw from there to Andheri East. So my hotel was in Andheri East and it was a pretty small budget hotel. And so Obviously, this was before Google Maps was was big in the city in the country, and so yeah. Then the, the rickshaw drivers, of course, obviously don't really speak much English, um, so it was pretty hard. Uh, and then you know this the hotel, like you know the guy, like there was like not a proper number for the hotel, and so the guy, the rickshaw driver, couldn't reach him. And then you know he didn't really know what it was. So it was, uh, we ended up, uh, and it was it was very tough because I had all my bags, so I, I couldn't like just like get out and get a new like hail a new car or rickshaw cab on the street so i uh, you know i ended up taking like an hour and a half to find the hotel it was, like a, crazy, it was a crazy situation um and so this was in the middle of the summer this was in april so it was obviously were you hot. stressing out or was it like a fun yeah. adventure uh no at, at that point well i mean yeah, not really stressing out like i i knew i knew at some point yeah we would find it i mean it was just it was just gonna take time I think, yeah, there are there obviously a, a number of those experiences of the first few weeks. And, 
Yeah, I, I realize that you should have to you know, be patient. I mean, uh, you, you definitely learn patience uh, pretty quickly in those situations because, yeah, I mean, stressing out over something like that. Yeah, I, I never, I mean, look, I'm not, yeah, personally, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who stresses out really about anything that way. Uh, I, I kind of take it all in stride, uh, you know, because I, I know that, you know, that's that's not productive. It's not logical. It's not constructive. Um, so it, it never really leads anywhere. Um, so there's no point of doing that. Uh, I, I think, yeah, you have to kind of, you know, really relish the experience and yeah, you know, the, the way to think about it is, yeah, you know, it's going to be a really good story one day. Um, and so I think that, yeah, that's true. That's all. Okay. What are the stories from that first trip in India? Stuff that is still vivid in your mind? Um, yeah, you know, there's, I mean, there's dozens of, <laughs> dozens of stories. Uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, certainly, uh, you know, it was, you know, I think what was really cool about, you know, the, the trip was, you know, you know, it was, a, it was an opportunity to obviously do a huge amount of business diligence on ground, but, you know, you could kind of mix that with being a tourist. Um, so, so business I, diligence, like, like uh, uh, did you come to India with an agenda that you want to explore uh, it as a business destination? Yeah, well, I knew that, yeah, so coming in, I, I knew that I wanted to, to do Zoom car. Um, so I, at that point, oh, really, yeah. okay. Uh, so, so while you were at international power before joining B school, you already knew that you want to start something in India. Yeah. So I knew that we wanted to do something in the transport space and wanted to do something in the, you know, kind of the consumer facing, um, mobility side, um, you know, within, mm-hmm. you know, personal mobility. And, you know, that was definitely, you know, something which was front and center for us. And okay. the, the trip is really confirmatory due diligence and, so, uh, what, what do you mean by we? Like you had your my co-founder and I. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And so, how did you meet your co-founder? We were friends from uh, school, undergrad at Penn. Okay. So okay. yeah, we were, we were buddies from there. Hmm. So, like, India was one of the options that you were exploring, or you were clear that okay, we want to do mobility in India. Well, I think we were, well, we were clear in India, uh, and then I think we were pretty clear on mobility in India as well, um, just given the. As I think I mentioned, you know, it's if you want to do something in, you know, renewable energy, uh, broader sustainability on the power infrastructure side, it's it's pretty tough because, you know, it's a it's a long slog, it's a long haul, uh, very expensive, you know, very slow uh, approvals, procedures, uh, just not something that you can really do uh, in a very short period of time. <laughs> so simply put. And I think that was really for us, at least what, you know, kind of came out. And, and so, yeah, we wanted to, you know, make sure that, you know, we were going to be able to do something that could scale. So I think that's why we looked at what we did. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, uh, like, how did the idea of India come into your mind? Like, I mean, you have never visited India, you know, how, how does it, how did that idea originate that, okay, I, I'll do this in India? Uh, yeah, well, no, as, as I mentioned, uh, you know, it was something where uh, I had a lot of professional experience with India uh, in my earlier jobs where, you know, there were a lot of deals and a lot of opportunities that we looked at in India. So, yeah, that was, you know, for like three years, right? So three years, four years. So I think that that really helped. Uh, and, you know, that obviously was a, a, an important driving factor and motivating factor. Uh, also, as, as I think I mentioned, uh, you know, at UPenn, you ended up meeting a lot of friends, uh, meeting a lot of guys and, and good buddies from India. Uh, and so, yeah, even from the time I was in college. So, you know, I had a chance to meet with their families as well when they would visit. 
um, you know, their you know, dads or moms would talk about you know, India as a destination, as a sort of a commercial opportunity as well. So I, I think that it was certainly uh, helping and conspiring and influencing me uh, in that direction, uh, which which I think was was, was good. Uh, and then you know finally even going back to when I was in school, I also studied a lot about India. Um, so you know about like you know history, political economy, you know even the food. So all, all of that uh, was uh, certainly there in a favorable way. Okay. okay. So so uh, your co-founder David was also traveling with you uh, when you came to India, or this no? So- actually, he was not. Uh, so he was in the U.S. Uh, due to job constraints at the time. But um, so I ended up doing all of that digging and being on ground myself. So yeah, that was uh, also something which made it, you know, on, on some levels, uh, you know, very exciting uh, because when you're traveling alone. It's very empowering, right? You have to kind of just go out and make something happen, uh, right? As opposed to being with someone else. So there's a different level of uh, proactiveness. Uh, so this that. was like a reconnaissance mission in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's that's more or less. Uh, as, as I said, there it's you know kind of a lot of fact finding, a lot of diligence, etc. And, and that was uh, you know for three to four months. And uh, what was your uh, takeaway at the end of it, like? Did you think that yes, it's doable? Did you form a thesis on how you should do it and stuff like that? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, definitely. So, I mean, more than anything, uh, I would say it, it really motivated me uh, in a, in a big way to kind of get after it, and you know, it, it really strengthened. I would say you know, really fortified the conviction uh, around what we were doing, and you know, basically said that you know, this is you're barking. You're barking up the right tree. Uh, you know you should be just going more. You know at a all-out pace and go you know head first and go a thousand miles an hour to make this happen. So I, I think that's really kind of what what came out uh, you know, pretty quickly. That point, yeah. And uh, so you joined uh, USC Marshall School of Business. Uh, and so when you joined, you were already clear that, okay, you're going to start uh, a mobility business in right. India. So, right. so then obviously that uh, experience in the B school would all be through those lens only, I'm guessing. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. And, you know, again, there I was fortunate that, you know, we had, I think, uh, like 10 or 11 people from our year who were from India. Uh, were in the school with us in the class and maybe 220, 230 kids in the class uh, in each year. So, yeah, so a decent uh, number. And, yeah, I mean, it was, it was something where, you know, I, I actually you know, always felt that, um, you know, they were you know, very helpful and you know, certainly in, insightful. Uh, and, you know, I ended up, you know, a lot of connections I ended up making uh, with, you know, the community in India, you know, actually came from them. In fact, one of them ended up investing uh, and, and became a you know, good friend. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's 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 something which definitely was useful and was was very helpful. And you know, I think when you're starting out a, a venture, it's you know, I actually recommend this to a lot of people who are aspiring to be entrepreneurs. But one one of the best times to start is actually in business school uh, because you just have a little bit more flex, you know, a little bit more time, uh, quite frankly. So. If you're going to start, you know, starting in your first year of business school or second year of business school is a great time to start. Uh, I think the the only downside to that is, you know, sometimes if, if you need to, you know, invest money or put in money. So, like, you know, a lot of startups are, you know, almost all startups, in fact, are bootstrapped to start. 
Uh, and you know, almost, you know, almost a hundred percent of startups have founders put in money, right? So that's, that's there in almost every case uh, that I've ever seen. Um, you know, it ranges, of course, you know, it can range from, you know, five lakhs to, you know, five crores. Um, but yeah, so it's, you know, something which, uh, you know, of course you, you want to do, and it's actually a big red flag if you don't. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's why like 99% of people do, um, to some level. And, uh, yeah, so that's why it's, it's a good time to typically do it, um, in, in college or in, uh, undergrad or, or graduate rather, uh, whether it's MBA or masters or whatever you're doing. So I think for me, it was, yeah, obviously an MBA course, two-year course, but I ended up sticking around only for a year and dropping out after that. Um, the first year was really crazy because I was, you know, working, you know, full steam in school and I was, I started the energy club and I was the, the president and I was rallying there and doing a lot of clean tech work. Uh, and part of that was kind of like a hedge in the event that zoom car wasn't working out. Uh, and then overnight, uh, cause of the time difference, like basically from like 11 PM onwards, uh, I would, uh, work on zoom and I would call people in India. Yeah. I would be doing a lot of different work and yeah, that was really tough, uh, because you know, you, you would just, you know, you'd be exhausted because you're, you're working a full day, uh, you're working a full 14 hour day and then you're coming back and working, you know, six hours, seven hours, eight hours overnight. Wow. Um, you would, you like would not, two, three hours of sleep a day. Yeah, you'd sleep for like two, three hours a night um, consistently. And yeah, you just, I mean, that's the way it works. Um, and so, yeah, I did that for the whole year. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was it was something where it was, it was really intense. It was pretty hardcore. I mean, uh, yeah, I would say it's <laughs> kind of like I, I I still remember I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, of Tesla. Um, and I, I always remembered, you know, hearing Elon Musk uh post you know some of their problems when they were scaling up their model three where he was like you know it, it was really really i just remember he was saying it was like really really hardcore and he's like sleeping on the factory floor and i remember I, I was like well i think that was maybe like 2017 or 18 for those guys maybe like years ago uh but i remembered i was like hearing you know i must say that i was like i can obviously you know he's a you know an unbelievably successful entrepreneur but yeah you know, i can totally relate to that because you know i you know, I, I wasn't sleeping on the factory floor but i yeah, I might as well have been doing that because it was just like an insane, it was just a totally insane experience for that year uh, as you were starting off. And so I think, uh, you know, so many entrepreneurs have that experience, but I think for me, it was probably a little unique because I was having to do it remotely, uh, you know, phoning a different country. And then, you know, at that point, again, you know, connected, it, it wasn't like you had WhatsApp, right? So it was all on Skype and it was like, you know, a terrible connection. Like you were, calling from a Skype number to a Indian mobile number. And this was like way before Reliance Geo came, you know, this was when Airtel and Vodafone had pretty pathetic uh, penetration in the country in 2011, 2012. So yeah, it was, it was, it was very tough. It was, it was very, very tough. I mean, you know, had I, had I known it was going to be so tough, you know, I, I <laughs> you know, might not have, uh, might not have done it. Um, it probably, it's probably good that I didn't know it was so tough. Uh, going into it mm. yeah okay so, so what were you doing in that one year on the zoom project like did you narrow down that uh, you want to start as a car rental service or like you know t tell me about how the idea evolved over that year to where you finally left p school and uh, got on the ground yeah so i think remarkably little changed actually from the time you know so prior to india you know we had already uh, prior to visiting india rather uh, we had already kind of drawn out the entire business plan. 
uh, everything was kind of put together. What was the original plan that you'll purchase cars and then uh, like rent them out? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, per- I mean, to be honest, purchasing cars was never really, I mean, it, it wasn't like we were prescriptive where it's like, we're going to buy cars or we're not going to buy cars. Um, we wanted to just acquire, I mean, I, ideally, like initially we, we figured we could aggregate them, uh, and then, you know, not buy cars. I mean, ideally, look, if, if you can obviously avoid buying cars, uh, if you can just, uh, you know, onboard them onto the platform, uh, that's aggregate better. them, how, like there was no, I mean, so. I, I, and I'll tell you what I'm confused of. Like, say someone like an Uber could aggregate because they were already taxi service providers, but India didn't have a car rental industry as such. So what would you be aggregating? I mean, you were basically in the rental space only, right? Or were you looking at a shared taxi, like a Uber kind of a... No, no, no. So we were always looking at, uh, you know, something on the personal mobility side where you were going to drive yourself. So that was always the case. Uh, we just... We looked at the the taxi market and the ride hailing space. You know, at that point, Uber was just coming up in the U.S. Um, and I think you know, we just we never believed that model worked. And I think you know, I think we are proven correct, right? So I think Uber and Lyft have obviously been failed companies. Um, you know, there's been you know, none of the ride hailing companies globally have, have worked. Um, Ola has obviously totally pivoted their business and you know, basically are shutting down their their ride hailing business, right? So they're they're hardly doing anything out there. Um, you know, now they're they're pivoted to be an electric scooter manufacturer, um, so so yeah, so it it shows that I think we you know not not to tutor on horns there, but I think we had a, a good amount of prescience uh, knowing that that model was really not going to succeed uh, long term, and uh, yeah, I think that's that's proven out you know, today. So I I, I think uh, at least in terms of profitability, um, so. I think the the point there was, you know, par, for us at least, personal mobility was always the answer, uh, because it was always going to be cheaper. Um, it was always going to be, you know, less costly. It was going to always have a, a more profitable market opportunity. So that was something which made it, you know, I, I think, you know, always more appealing. And but how would you get the supply in place? Because uh, there wasn't any like existing car rental agencies in India that you could aggregate and... Uh, well, know. no, I mean, that, that wasn't really true, right? So there, there was always a lot of small-time mom-and-pop tours and travels guys. So initially we were thinking we would just aggregate from those guys um, or you know, aggregate from individuals, actually. Uh, but then I think what we realized early on was that you know the regulation was actually pretty tight and was not allowing for those type of aggregation models. So ultimately, you know, it, we ended up landing on the, the whole purchasing of vehicles because there was just no other alternative. So that was, uh, you know, uh, yeah, obviously, I don't think anyone is going to go in and say, like, you know, I, I want to have to to spend more money and do more effort to, to get inventory, right? Like, I don't, if you had an option, uh, I don't think anyone would necessarily advocate for that option first. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, it's more... Yeah, the and justifying the means and, and kind of the, as long as the cat catches the mouse. So I, I think that's that's really more important for us. Um, I, I think, you know, what we realized was that, you know, going and, and buying cars and, and going with the license it, it, and getting that whole process, it was going to take longer to do that. But it would also be a competitive advantage once you kind of got through it, because one, you would need licensing, right? You would need capital and all that. Uh, so, so yeah, so that was, I think, kind of the reason overall. But did you have money to buy cars or you did a angel round or something like? We, so as I mentioned, you know, we, we put in my co-founder and I put in some of our own money. 
Uh, and then you know, we also raised uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars, so a couple a couple crores. Uh, we had raised at that point, um, you know, as we were starting the business, and that allowed us to kind of get access to more cars. Uh, and so we started off with just seven cars in Bangalore. Yeah, I still remember we had four Ford Figos and three Mahindra Scorpios, and I still remember the license plate numbers. Uh, you know, eleven forty eight to eleven fifty four. Uh, series uh, K. Um, so yeah, yeah. So I still remember everything about the first uh, vehicle delivery, where uh, actually it was we, we actually did a home delivery to the customer who is uh, in his office in Coromandel, and he handed us a bag of cash. Uh, <laughs> because uh, yeah, all, all of this was of course totally uh, yeah. This is of course very clean. Uh, this was all legitimate. <laughs> uh, thing. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, but no, this was, um, it was, it was funny cause it was a bag of cash. I think it was like 13,000 rupees or something because, you know, we didn't have a functioning payment gateway at the time. Um, we, we hadn't even gone live with the, the website, the integration yet. So it was kind of like a presale. So the only thing we could do is take cash cause there were no ways you, you couldn't take like a remote digital credit card where, you know, those, there, there were those payment, there were mobile POS systems at that point. They were just, they just launched in 2012. Um, but the, uh, the, the problem out there was, you know, that they were not reliable and they're very expensive. Um, so it was not very, how did uh, you actually, uh, get the initial things done? Like, uh, is it easy for a person who's not an Indian citizen to start a private limited company and no, cars and stuff like that? No, no, of course not. Very difficult. Um, at that point it was extremely difficult. Uh, now today it's a little bit easier. It's still not that easy for foreigners. Uh, but no, it's, it's, it was brutal, uh, because, you know, the, the process, you know, for us, so we actually set up largely the Indian entity from the U S, uh, which made it even tougher because the whole KYC issue, I remember like probably having to send my passport, my visa, my photos, like seven or eight times, uh, at least maybe more, maybe more. I remember cause I in Boston for a summer working between first and second year before I left. Uh, and you know, that was, uh, that was really painful because I, I had to go and, you know, work with FedEx and UPS and the post office there so many times. Um, I, I must have visited the post office like six or seven times and over the course of like three, three weeks maybe. And yeah, I, I was like, yeah, no one should ever have to visit the post office ever. Um, it's not a good experience. It's like going to the DMV. I mean, you know, which is like the RTO uh, in the U.S. So it's like yeah, no one, no one wants to go to the RTO um, or the STA office. And so same thing goes like the U.S. Post Office. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, pretty terrible. But um, yeah, you know, you have to kind of, you, you have to do what you have to do, right? There's no, there's no shortcuts around it. And you know, I think what. I think the the difficulties in all of those logistical setups for us early on, uh, it really, again, it gave us a lot of patience and it really taught us that, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're 90% of what you do, especially in the first one or two years, it's not glamorous at all, right? There's nothing glamorous about having to like run to the post office seven times in three weeks and sit there for hours and, you know, go and call people in India for hours to like, you know, get like a signature, get like, you know, documents in place. And, you know, for the first, it was really for the first like 12 months of even operating the business. It was just, 
it was like one logistical mess after another, like n- nothing even tied to business. It was just like admin work uh, where you just had to do like the first year of our business, we were, I was like so bogged down. Like, you know, when people like asked me, like, how do you spend your time? And I spent like, I was like, I spent over half my time on admin and uh, they were like, yeah, that's insane. Right. Like no one would ever choose. Like, why would you do that? It's, it's not, it's not good for any business. So it's, it's a major distract. I'd say it's a major distraction. It's a major dissuading point for any entrepreneur, um, you know, especially a local Indian entrepreneur as well. So, so yeah, it's just it's just not good. I mean, I, I think the government now has, you know, they made some strides, but they claim to be like very, you know, entrepreneur friendly. But that's that's just wrong. That's just not the case. The government's not. Yeah, it's it's oh, it's a joke, right? I mean, how can you? If you come out with with rules, you know, saying that you're gonna, you know, have one percent GST, you know, tax through cash, right? Uh, or if you even, you know, think about, you know, making, you know, startups pay GST, uh, at that point, that or service tax. Um, I mean, how could you possibly do that, right? Like, if you're just starting off and you're just starting making revenue, like, why would you ever have to pay tax uh, when you're just starting? It doesn't make any sense. So. The point is that yeah, there's the, the policy regime is just very off. And the incentive is it's not basically, uh, you know, the Indian government operates with a trust deficit. So, uh, you know, so for example, if they were to make things more relaxed, then the biggest fear would be that people would manipulate and you know take advantage and find loopholes. And you know, someone has an existing business which is doing well. He doesn't want to pay GST. He just starts a new company, claims it's a startup. So right. you know, there there are those trust deficit issues uh, as a i mean in the society as a whole you know until they don't get solved uh, probably right. the ease of doing business will remain yeah but of course i mean the alternative is much worse right like you know just i mean the, the point is that the, the bad actors are you know one percent so the point is that, you know even, even if you have bad actors you know so you know, even if you have leakage i mean so the, the real argument is you know okay so what I mean, it's it's one percent. What's the big deal? Um, the the growth that you have from you know the ninety nine percent just totally washes out that leakage that's there from the one or two percent. So it uh, yeah, and that's been proven you know time and time again everywhere globally. So it, it's just it's just not good logic. It's just not well founded. It's not based on any, any data. So which is I think the problem. Uh, anyway, I mean not not to digress, but I think that that's something which uh, is a systemic issue. And yeah, it, it made it really, really frustrating for us as we were you know, building out you know, the business. So you landed in India in mid-2012 with a couple of crores and with the incorporation done. So then what did you do next? Like you bought the cars and you launched a, like a website and started generating demand? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't quite so easy. I mean, uh, yeah, it was more... <laughs> The first uh, three, four months, it was all just a race to get sort of the licensing and the permitting and figuring out, you know, those modalities. You had to get a commercial license for these cars? Uh, yeah, eventually. Uh, initially, though, it was uh, working with a, uh, a partner who already had a license because it was clear that there was no way for us to obtain a license just straight away. Uh, because we needed to have all sorts of, like, you know, pretty wild requirements, uh, which we just didn't have. So... Yeah, we realized that it was it was going to be pretty, pretty tough and a bit of a slog. Uh, to so you like 
got into a like a rental arrangement or something with that partner where you would pay him a rental for the cars and um, like something like that right that's right that's right yeah it's basically a sort of a rental model type it was almost like an operating lease uh to this uh, individual to this small tourism travels player so we worked uh you know, with him exclusively for 12 month period mm-hmm. okay okay and how did you generate demand yeah uh initially we generated demand just through really strong word of mouth uh we didn't spend marketing money at all for the first two years um and we didn't invest anything uh for the first two years uh so it was all about you know just creating that positive buzz word in the mouth uh, word of mouth in the market uh, a lot of referrals uh and then you know it spread that way and you know we we did some you know ground activation so to speak at uh, you know at petrol bunks so diesel bunks so um you know, that way you know definitely uh potentially makes makes sense and you know then we had a couple of you know strong alliances uh where you know it helped us kind of build more credibility uh, i would say mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Uh, so initially what was it was it like a on demand car like you just book it and it reaches your home or did you have to go to some pickup point and pick it up the way it is in the west or like oh. Yeah, no, so early on, uh, it was a self-pickup model where you had to kind of go, you know, into one of these distributed parking facilities, uh, you know, which was going to be across the city. Uh, and, and so, you know, that was, uh, that was actually always the focus. So, um, so by end of 2012, you had like seven cars and you were in Bangalore. So how did that proceed? Like by end of 2013, where were you at? And <clears throat> Right, right. Uh, yeah, you know, so it was, it was pretty wild the first year. Uh, as I said, there's huge amount of time just spent on general admin and trying to get, you know, all of these licenses and, you know, approvals in place and, you know, just registrations in place. Um, so, you know, leaving that, you know, notwithstanding, uh, but, you know, I think the focus for us was on getting our primary self-drive permit, uh, which ended up coming in the first uh, quarter of, of 2014, um, so that was like a 12 month plus process. Uh, so that was the, that was a big one for us because we knew that, you know, that was the limitation to our supply growth. Um, so, you know, without having that, uh, in place, there, there was no way that we were going to be able to grow supply because our existing, our, our first partner, the, the tourism travels company that we were working with, uh, you know, he had a, a constraint and a limitation where he couldn't take cars beyond a certain point. So we, we kind of took him to 50 cars uh, you know, just sort of 50 cars and we, we, we couldn't, you know, go and add any more cars with him. Um, and so, yeah, that was the, the constraint. So I think ultimately it was just about getting that permit. So then we could, uh, ultimately purchase cars on our own. Hmm. hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this must've been a, like a capital intensive scale up. You would have needed to raise a lot of funding since you were purchasing the cars. Uh, yeah, so initially it was, um, you know, because we, you know, also you, you couldn't really get that much debt, right? So, I mean, it was always, uh, you know, on debt. So, you know, there was never a, uh, there was never a doubt that you, you need to have significant debt uh, because, you know, there's no way that you can buy cars on equity, right? So, uh, yeah, that's just too much money and, you know, it's just not very productive ROE. ROA. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was definitely something where my finance background helped a lot. Uh, because I, I had a you know expertise actually in debt, uh, I had done a lot of structured debt, a lot of project finance debt, so asset back debt. So I non recourse debt was something I knew you know quite well, uh, and I think that also probably was one of the reasons why we were able to get 
so much debt uh, is, is because I actually had a, a personal, uh, professional background in that beforehand. How, how soon did you uh, tap the market for funds, like be it debt or uh, VC funding? Uh, like, Well, they're very different, right? So, uh, you know, VC funding, we, you know, we're always talking to folks in the very beginning. Uh, so, you know, that was something where, you know, we had individual investors come in and then, you know, gradually institutions, small institutions and much larger. So, I mean, our first sort of VC, you know, VC PE investor was Sequoia. Uh, and that was the end of 2014. So that was about three years back. Uh, and, and then from there... How did that happen? Like like your uh, skills previously of uh, which you learned while you were at Fieldstone of getting new business, like they must have helped you here in terms of networking and opening doors of VCs and stuff like that? Uh, yeah, and no, I think it certainly helped to a point. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's more about just like getting your foot in the door. Uh, and then I think from there you kind of take it ahead. But... Uh, it, it's really, you know, for me, you know, having done a lot of, uh, you know, as you said, sort of, you know, sales type work uh, in investment banking, uh, you know, where you kind of understand how to bring in different, you know, relationships uh, into the mix. Uh, so certainly it was it was easier, I think, maybe to, to navigate that landscape and understand it a little bit better. Um, but yeah, having said that, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you know, that's just the, the beginning. Uh, it's just a starting line. So it's really about, uh, you know, what you do from there uh, that matters the most. And I, I think it was, you know, it's always, it's always been, been about execution. So the, the game has always been execution. Okay. So you got Sequoia in as your first uh, big institutional investor. And uh, then, like, who, who were the others? Uh, so over time, we, we brought in other institutions like Nokia, uh, Nokia Growth Partners, uh, Our Crowd, uh, Ford, motor company, Mahindra. So you know, these names came in uh, over the years. And you know, then uh, more recently, like Sony. So Sony Ventures, which is one of the, uh, the I mean, that's their venture arm of, of Sony. So you know, we had a mix of, uh, I would say, financial investors, uh, so like VCs, PEs, uh, and then combining that you know, with OEMs. So it's, you know, it's always been a pretty balanced uh, overall endeavor, I would say. <clears throat> was it tough getting money from Mahindra? I mean, considering that Mahindra is like an old school Indian business conglomerate who typically does not do uh, like, I mean, you know, Indian business conglomerates have not typically been doing like VC funding, startup funding, though now they have. But at right. that time, it must have been uh, like you must have been one of the earliest ones. Uh, yeah, you know, so they hadn't done too much. Uh, so I, I think there were a few examples before us, uh, but yeah, I, I think, uh, it obviously depends, uh, you know, what group company you're talking about, uh, because, you know, we were actually in Eminem, we were on the automotive side, so it was a little bit different. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, uh, it helped that Ford actually had done uh, an investment earlier. And so even at that point of time, Ford and Mahindra were, uh, working on this broader alliance, this strategic partnership. So I, I think that also helped uh, on many levels. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You you got to meet uh, Anand Mahindra also? Uh, that's right. Yeah. So I met Anand a few times. So th- that was obviously, you know, certainly quite an experience. So not something you'll you know, ever sort of forget. Uh, I mean, his his office alone is, is pretty incredible. I mean, we met, I, I still remember the first time we met was, uh, if you're familiar with Bombay, uh, you know, it's, it's actually uh, all the way down in, in South Bombay. Uh, you know, right near, uh, actually right behind the Taj Hotel. 
the Taj Mahal Hotel, where the um, unfortunately where the the attacks were in, in two thousand eight. Um, so yeah, so it's basically right behind that. There's a, a little lane. There's an alley, uh, if you will, and you know Mahindra has you know their you know old school like really old corporate office there, uh, where I guess the the broader Mahindra family had sit uh, had sat uh, over a couple of generations. And, you know, that, that whole area was built up by the Britishers a long time ago in the uh, 1800s. But yeah, so that was, uh, you know, a really beautiful old building, like the super old British like, colonial building. Um, and it was, you know, kind of transformed. It was like a you know, two-story, three-story building. So it's, it's all kind of like low-slung uh, buildings that are really old, uh, really nicely maintained, you know, it's kind of restored. Um, and, yeah, the office itself is like stunning. You, you walk in, it's, um, you know, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Tata has a very similar... Uh, office, I think it's like the Bombay House, uh, but where all the top management sits, and you know it's the same thing here where Anand uh, personally sits, and uh, yeah, you know the office it was just like super over the top, it was like incredibly nice, um, and so yeah, I remember you know waiting for you know, maybe about twenty minutes outside with his assistant, and then finally getting uh, you know ushered in, and then uh, yeah, I think the meeting yeah ended up being a pretty long meeting. It was like probably forty five fifty minutes. Um, you know, which uh, I think for for guys like that, usually it's a pretty long meeting. So, so yeah, it was it was it was good. You know, I got to hear his vision, um, his thought process for you know the group, and you know how he was thinking about uh, some of these new trends. And you know, I think it was it was clear that you know he had you know at a high level, at a broad level, understanding the direction, uh, the vision they wanted to take Mahindra um, in. But I think in terms of the you know double clicking on you know, more of the sort of implementation strategy. I think that was where it was obviously still getting fleshed out. I think that's where, you know, he felt that, you know, partnership, uh, investment partnership with Zoomcar uh, potentially could help, uh, you know, lubricate that uh, and, and facilitate that, uh, you know, broader uh, vision, you know, one level down. So I, I think uh, that was probably the, the, the motivating factor uh, behind it, I would say. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. And uh, so, you know, like, tell me about how your uh, revenue has kind of grown over the years. Like, what kind of revenue did you do in the first year? And uh, how has that uh, shaped up over the years? Oh, well, yeah, in the first year, we <laughs> we, we did like, you know, around a million dollars or so. Uh, yeah, so it's was, it was quite, uh, quite nominal, quite de minimis. Uh, and so, you know, that consistently grew over time as we added more and more vehicles. And saw more and more transactions, more and more customers coming through the door. So yeah, for us, I mean, the the prime you know way of, of generating revenue is is from having more units uh, by having more vehicles. So that was ultimately the name of the game. You know, the more vehicles you have, the more revenue you can generate. So it was always, it was always a game of you know how many vehicles you can uh, amass. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so what kind of revenue do you do now? Like, are you at liberty to tell us? Uh, I mean, we can't really talk about the exact numbers, but, you know, we've we've crossed 75 million of annual revenue. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're north of that. And then obviously, I mean, with COVID, uh, you know, COVID's been an interesting situation because we were obviously locked down for a number of months. But, you know, we, we've, seen, uh, we've seen a very strong bounce back, uh, a very strong bounce back for post-COVID. Okay. Okay. So, uh, and your uh, product itself has also evolved. So initially you started with uh, only cell-phoned vehicles, but, uh, you know, tell me about that evolution, how the product and services that you were offering, how they evolved over the years. 
Uh, yeah, so we have a couple of product offerings now today. I mean, when we started, it was just one product. It was about short-term access, so hourly, daily uh, rental. Uh, so you can take a vehicle for a couple of hours, take it for a couple of days. So short-term access was the first product for the first couple of years. Uh, then sort of 2017-18 came along, and we realized that there was a, a huge unmet market opportunity there and need in the long-term access market. Uh, and, and that's where you know we wanted to push ahead with a, uh, a vehicle digital subscription. And so we created the first long-term access product in India for personal mobility uh, by creating a 100% digitized uh, car subscription uh, and, and have that as a service. And you know, so we also introduced alongside that sort of what we believed uh, at the time, and you still believe that for sure today, um, is that like a killer app feature uh, you know, which, which is uh, actually allowing the individual subscribers to share back their vehicles on the Zoom car short-term rental platform when the, the car is idle, when the car is not in use. And so as a result, uh, this whole share back dynamic, uh, it really, it, it's more like an Airbnb marketplace type. Uh, so it's more of a managed marketplace type, uh, you know, two-sided there. And, you know, so so this actually is, uh, you know, quite quite powerful because what it does is at the end of the day, it reduces the, the monthly obligation of the subscriber. So it brings it down uh, by, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70%, depending on how much, how many days the subscriber is actually listing and sharing the car. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, who would go for a long-term subscription? Like, so you're saying this is an alternative to buying a car, like don't buy a car instead subscribe to a car. Yes. So the idea is, yeah, actually you don't need to buy a car. Uh, you can subscribe. Uh, well, I, I think if you, if you really look at it, it's, it's really about, you know, having something out there, you know, which is going to be very, very convenient, very, very flexible and very affordable. Convenient because you don't need to do the maintenance, like Zoom car would do the maintenance. Uh, yeah, well, I think it's, it's not just that. I mean, if you, if you look at it, there's the whole, um, you know, the fact that, you know, service maintenance is included, insurance is included, uh, the, the, the taxation, all that's included. Uh, so there's, there's really nothing else uh, over and above. Uh, that, that's all the hassles of car ownership are like, uh, kind of outsourced to Zoom car, and I just have a car uh, right. when I need right, it for right, right. it. Yeah, the, the whole exactly. Yeah, the whole idea is that um, you know th this is really you know outside of that uh, you know so auspice, so you you don't have to worry about you know anything that's going to be ancillary, miscellaneous, out of pocket, um, and mm -hmm. so yeah, more than anything, that's that's actually quite powerful for folks. Mm -hmm. Okay, and yeah, yeah. this you can also save money when you rent it out uh, when it's lying idle. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The whole idea is that, you know, it's, you know, super efficient that way, uh, you know, you actually can save, uh, and you know, it's more in sync with your usage pattern. But if the car is in my driveway, then do I need to drive it to some place to rent it out? Or mm -hmm. like, uh, no, that's the beauty of it is that it's, you know, super, super convenient where, uh, individual renters can actually go and, and pick up the vehicle at your house. And there's a keyless entry system through your smartphone so the, the smartphone actually unlocks the car. So you don't need to be physically present. You don't need to be there handing over keys. You don't need to have, there's no paperwork. Uh, the car doesn't need to be uh, moved and, and reallocated or relocated. So that way it's, uh, it's much, much easier. When did you implement this keyless system? Uh, was so that's, been there, that's been there almost from the beginning. Um, so, you know, it was uh, there in, you know, initially there was a, a, a version one of it that, you know, was there for some time. Didn't, uh, unfortunately, the technical aspects of it didn't work out that well. So we kind of shut that and then relaunched it in 2016. 
So it's you been really, in-house or, uh, you yeah, in-house, in-house. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So initially we were working with third parties. We realized that that was not scalable. Uh, there were a lot of challenges on the tech infra side. Uh, so we realized that we had to bring those capabilities in-house and that's actually now, you know, a precursor to kind of one of our existing, one of our current business lines, which is around enterprise SaaS. So our, our next product has been around uh, enterprise SaaS and, and really focusing on mobility technology uh, as a service. What is this product? Tell me more about this. Well, this is, uh, I'm sure, I mean, yeah, I'm sure you would have seen uh, ZMS, Zoom Car Mobility Services. So this is our uh, B2B enterprise SaaS offering. And so, you know, we effectively offer, you know, two core products. Uh, one is vehicle uh, connectivity as a service. So IoT as a service, uh, around like, you know, real-time, you know, driver scoring, vehicle health monitoring, uh, the real-time digital access, digital remote access. Uh, so and, the, the enterprise would get a dashboard where they can log in and see all the data about their. Uh, yeah, so that's part of it. It's it's kind of it's a hardware come software solution. Uh, but yeah, so that's part of it. It's really uh, the IoT connectivity as a service side is really oriented towards uh, you know different uh, fleets and you know that's more fleet owner operators more than anything else and you know different vehicle form factors. So so yeah, so that's uh, that's over there. The other pillar uh, for us is sort of the vehicle yield management services. Which is effectively a you know like revenue maximization function, and for that you know it's it's giving uh, aspects of our subscription software and our renter software and exposing that uh, you know to, from a white labeling standpoint uh, to OEMs to dealer distributors or you know actually also uh, to the the fleet owner operators. So Can you an example of this like. Oh, oh. So we work with a number of OEMs. So we work now with multiple OEMs uh, in India where we have, uh, you know, white labeled. Uh, and so, you know, that's something where you will be uh, announcing a lot more of those partnerships very soon. But all, all of the top OEMs now in India we're working with on this white labeling uh, where they actually white label our uh, software as a service. So like Mahindra could, for example, uh, be using this where, uh, instead of buying a Mahindra car, you subscribe to a Mahindra car, and that is powered by Zoom at the back end. So is that what this is? Right. So it's white labeled, so it's it, it doesn't like say anything about powered by Zoom car. But you know, the whole idea is that you know, as a the back end, yeah, at the back end. Uh, so the whole point is that the consumer you see Mahindra subscription. So yeah, that's right. So hmm. that's the that's the whole idea. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's very seamless, very simple. But you know, if you think about it, the OEMs. They really want to be the brand owners, uh, so they they really desire to be the brand owners. Um, so that's that's something which is really important is that they want to be the custodian of the customer journey, uh, and really have that uh, sort of end to end. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so the products you've told me so far, you have these two enterprise products, uh, IoT and uh, the white labeled solution, and you have right. short term right within the city and long-term sub, like right. subscribe to a car. Uh, yeah. What else? So th- those are the products. Th- those are the three, you know, core products. Uh, so what about intercity? Like, uh, can you pick up the car at one place and drop it at another place? Uh, yeah, you can do that. Uh, we don't really consider that a different product because uh, that's still within short-term rental. Uh, so yeah, within short-term rental, we have uh, intercity one way. We have uh, intra-city one way, uh, flexible, uh, you know, sort of free float drop. Uh, we have airport pickup. We have rail, railway station pickup. Uh, you know, so there is also a you know, sort of a commute type product, which is like a, a two week rental, which gives you much lower kilometers. So there's a number of quote unquote like micro products 
uh, within you know the the broader macro product. Hmm. Okay. 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 Yeah. So, so uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, so David uh, like went back to the US a couple of years back. So uh, like, why did uh, he like was India too much for him or uh, what? Uh, it was mainly for personal reasons. I mean, he was actually getting married. Uh, so, and his wife uh, wanted to be in the States. And so it was, it was proving to be a little difficult, uh, logistically, personally, that way. Uh, and, and so, yeah, that was really the, the prime motivating factor for him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So, uh, what are the, the technologies that you are currently investing in for the, like, the next phase of Zoomcar? Right, right. So I think you know we're we're very big, obviously, on uh, AI ML. Uh, you know, for you know, probably obvious reasons, as it relates to the vehicle and the algorithms that come from the vehicle in terms of you know predictive maintenance, uh, driver scoring, vehicle health monitoring. So that's all uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning based. That one uh, one piece. So for our data science team plus engineering. And then the, the other piece is uh, CV and computer vision. So computer vision is, is very important for us as we think about the use cases tied to uh, vehicle safety in terms of the, the dash cameras, et cetera. Uh, and then also, you know, we have significant uh, CV capabilities uh, as it relates to uh, some of the operational processes. So a lot of the you know, image recognition, uh, image detection, damage detection uh, on the vehicles, a lot of that is actually done through CV, computer vision, and then even like sort of real-time selfie verification matching. So if I want to match my selfie, uh, you know, vis-a-vis uh, something I had done earlier, uh, so then uh, I can do that. So that was the journey of Zoomcar from an idea in Greg's mind to being a market disruptor. And if you're fed up of being locked up inside your home for months and want to hit the road, consider the sustainable option of renting a car from Zoomcar for the next road trip. If you like the Founder Thesis podcast, then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing, technology, career advice, books, and drama. Visit thepodium.in, that is... T-H-E-P-O-D-I-U-N dot I-N for a complete list of all our shows.